Pray with me one more time if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for this day that you've given us. Help us to make the most of it. Help us to pay attention to things that will matter in this life, but will also matter forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I wonder how many of you have ever been to a prophecy conference? I didn't even ask for a show of hands, but some of you are, good job, you're putting your hands up. Uh, I think I've been to a couple uh, in my life. I think they were both in Dallas, so I get extra credit uh, because it has historically been like the prophecy capital of, of America. Prophecy conferences used to be super popular, um, very, very popular, but they're not so popular anymore. I think one reason they're not so popular anymore is because oftentimes prophecy conferences tended to be gimmicky um, and speculative about date setting. And somehow it just seemed like another opportunity for some speaker to sell their book because they somehow knew the secrets as to when Jesus was coming back. Never mind the fact that Jesus did say concerning that day or that hour, what? No one knows. So that's Mark chapter 13. No one knows. So then here's my question. Why in the world then is Omaha Bible Church in two weeks having a prophecy conference? (laughs) Not to try to be gimmicky, not to try to date set or sell books. But Jesus does say in the next verse this. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So we don't know, but it's actually something we're supposed to be looking forward to. Unbelievers should be looking forward to it in a sense of dread that would lead to repentance. But believers should be looking forward to the return of Christ because he will make all things right. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more struggling, no more bad news from the doctor, no more crazy scandals in the news, no more elections. (laughs) I mean, the list could go on and on. So that's why we're going to have a prophecy conference because so many times the emphasis is on the wrong thing. In particular, the emphasis is not on the right person. And I get so discouraged that I need a prophecy conference. <laughs> so maybe this is all just selfish. Um, but even as a pastor, when, when I'm burdened by bad news, uh, and maybe when I'm overly encouraged by too much good news, and I forget what's ultimately going to matter in the long run, it reminds me I need to be reminded that the Lord Jesus is making all things new. Revelation chapter 21. I need that kind of encouragement. I think you need that kind of encouragement. So we are going to have a non-speculative, <laughs> hopefully non, um, as one of my old uh, mentors would say, non-hokey um, prophecy conference. And I want to try to help get us ready for that by talking about prophetic things, end times things that we don't typically think of as end time things. So we started this last week, we'll do it this week as well, and then in two weeks we'll have the conference. Next Sunday, Vinit Sasane, our missionary in Pune, India, will be with us, and he's going to be preaching. Uh, and so I'm going to wrap up the pre-prophetic um, preparation, ah, there you go, and to get us ready for the conference. And what we're looking at is we're looking at four biblical doctrines, four biblical teachings that have to do with the future. And... Typically, they're not ones that we think of as having to do with the future, but maybe they're some of the most important ones that have to do with the future. So if you're a note taker, we're going to have four points today, four futuristic biblical doctrines that help Pat and hopefully you with perspective, and they help Pat and hopefully you to persevere, to keep going, 
Keep moving forward. Keep trusting in Christ because it actually is the most important thing and it's worth it. Number one. Oh, maybe before I get to number one, did you know, did you know that yesterday the rapture happened? Well, actually it didn't happen, but all kinds of people on YouTube said it was going to happen. Um, thus the gimmicks, thus the speculations, thus the crazy things. So I hope you can be better equipped to help people who are easily misled, misguided, um, because it really is sad when people say the Bible teaches something it doesn't teach. And so I'm hoping that that also helps equip you. This helps equip you as a better missionary. The first biblical doctrine that's important, that's futuristic, even though we oftentimes don't think of it that way, is the biblical doctrine of justification. The biblical doctrine of justification is all over Romans. Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. It's just all over the place. It's all over Paul's writings. Jesus talks about justification. Uh, Peter talks about justification. It's all over the Bible. It's in the Old Testament as well. But what does it mean? Well, it's a legal word. It's a courtroom. So imagine a courtroom where God is the judge. Oh, when is that going to happen? Well, that, that's a futuristic kind of thing. All Christians, since there have been Christians, have been talking about one day you'll stand before God. And God is a judge. Think of uh, Hebrews chapter 9. It's been appointed for a person to die, and then comes what? Judgment. Right? And we're, we're going to stand before God in His court of law, if you will. Well, justification is that kind of idea. God is the judge. Justification means to be declared a perfect law keeper. Okay? And we're going to look at Romans 5 real quick. And then we're going to look at Romans 3. This is review, but I'll give you new information. So if you came last week, you're, you don't, don't think you can take a nap now. Pay attention. It means to be declared a law keeper. Okay? It means to be declared perfect. It means to be declared righteous. Righteous means adherence or obedience to law. It's pretty straightforward. I know it's a big multi-syllabic word, but it's really important because it's all over the Bible and it has to do with the future. Okay, It is true. God is the judge and everyone will give an account for their life. But the cool, amazing End times, uh, the study of the end times is eschatology. The cool, let's use big words today, eschatological reality. Ooh, where else are you going to hear that? That encourages, that motivates is, it's already settled if you trust in Christ. You don't have anything to fear on judgment day because of the Lord Jesus. How about Romans chapter 5? It's a classic go-to text. It's worth remembering. It's worth memorizing. I don't have a great memory, so I confuse Romans 5.1 and Romans 8.1 all of the time. But I think it's a good kind of confusion because they essentially teach the same thing and are both pretty amazing. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified... And I want your knee-jerk instinct to be, in one sense, that's impossible because that's future judgment talk. And that hasn't happened yet. That's the right instinct. He's talking about a future kind of reality. But notice he says, we have been. It's already done. How? By faith. And he assumes we're reading our Bibles in context. By faith in what? By faith in faith? No, it's not by faith in self. Clearly, if you read the flow of all of these chapters in Romans, it's by faith in It's in Jesus. It's in Christ. So therefore, having been justified by faith in Jesus, we have present possession. It's ours now. It's an entitlement kind of word in a good way. What? Peace with God. Congratulations. You can sleep well at night. 
right? Your biggest problem, who is God, and my biggest problem, who is God, because he knows everything, there's no, there's no conflict. There's peace. It's, it's amazing. It's a grand, great reality that it's already been taken care of. And those, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about other things when we talk about prophetic matters. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about other things when we talk about the end, the, es- the eschaton, eschatology. But how many times have we totally forgotten this one? And in the context of Romans 5, Paul's encouraging. He, he's talking about their perseverance in 1 to 11. Uh, and facing suffering in 1 to 11. And you know the key? or at least one of the keys, just know that you have peace with God now. You can't get more justified. You can't get rid of your justification. It's sure because of the perfect, already done work of Christ. It's so good. How about Romans chapter 3 while we're there? Romans 3.28, and then we'll get things moving. 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified, so declared righteous, declared perfect, declared a perfect obeyer of God's standards, of His law. It's legal terminology. So that one is justified how? By faith, in the context, faith in Jesus, right? Apart from works of the law. And in one sense, again, I want that to kind of rub you the wrong way because it's, it's meant to be provocative. It's true and right, but apart from works of the law, how could that be? Because the only way to be declared a perfect keeper of the law is by perfectly keeping the law. And, and he says, you're justified apart from the works of the law. How could that possibly be? Well, it just begs the question. It's by faith in Jesus because he did it. It's just amazing. It's so, so amazing to know this great reality. And if you know this, you'll have things like assurance. That's, that's why Romans 8.1 talks about this. And then it's neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities. All those things, nothing can undo this. So if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, judgment's coming. Trust in Christ and have assurance. Have assurance. People who don't like the doctrine of assurance don't want to tell you about this. Okay? This is one of the reasons we had a Protestant Reformation. It's one of the big reasons why. So officially, according to the Council of Trent, to teach justification leading to assurance is condemned. And I at least like it that they put it in print. Um, ultimately, it doesn't matter Catholic, Protestant. What matters is what the Bible teaches. But it's for good reasons that there was a Protestant Reformation. One of the reasons why at the conference I want my brother to talk about the myth of future justification is because lots of evangelicals are talking that way these days and they sound like Roman Catholics. And um, it's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. You can't lose your justification. You can't get more justified. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so I want you to not have your assurance robbed and my brother is my big brother. He's nine years older than me. And he used to protect me from bullies. So I want him to be the, I want, he's going to come in to be the heavy. So I don't have to be, <laughs> but he's super passionate. I think he's written two books about assurance. This is a vital doctrine when it comes to the matter of assurance and also ultimately glorifying God. So I mentioned last week that um, sometimes people who, who don't like what I'm saying today uh, and don't like what you're believing, if you're believing this, they refer to us as forenzocentric. I have to be careful what I say. Somebody had me a shirt made this week because I said it in a sermon last week. Forenzocentric. So 
I have to be careful what I say. <laughs> Maybe I should talk about 18 karat gold watches today. <laughs> I kid for a little levity. All right. Let's move on. Let's go to number, uh, a second important biblical doctrine. So justification, being declared perfect even though you're not, that's futuristic, but you experience it now, so the future judgment is settled. Now let's talk about a second biblical doctrine, and it is the new creation. New creation, again, by way of review, but let's, let's be good neighbors to those who weren't here last week and ever so quickly review. 2 Corinthians 5.17, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is the touchstone. It's the one you go to again and again because it's so clear, but we could go to other texts. But 2 Corinthians 5.17, new creation talk. This is eschatological, future study kind of stuff, future looking. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means united to Christ. He is literally, as I mentioned last week, literally take the ah uh or ah uh out. He is new creation. What? Again, knee-jerk instinct. That, that's not right. New creation has to be in the future. Well, that, that's a good instinct. It's true. But if you're in Christ, you're already a part of the new creation. That complements our first important biblical doctrine, right? I'm already in because I'm in Christ. And that would actually complement the fact that if I'm justified, I have peace with God and, and everything's taken care of. And you know what? I'm also new creation. That's important. That's vital when I'm watching the news and I'm watching things that make me upset and things that make me angry and things that make me afraid or I'm experiencing all kinds of turmoil turmoil and personal relationships in my life. Maybe it's my own heart in my own mind. New creation. Oh, let's do the other side of it because I'm just doing doing kind of the negative. How about when everything is awesome and I'm just starting a new career and things are going great and I just got a promotion and maybe I just got engaged. That's true for some of you or you get the idea. What's going to last forever? The most important thing as great as other blessings are. If you're in Christ, you are new creation. You're a citizen. You're in. You're a joint heir with Christ. So good. So helpful. And that actually helps me get through good times and bad times. This is not it. This is not the end game. This is not the best life. The best life is actually yet to come. We looked at it last week, but Revelation 3.14 talks about Jesus because he's been resurrected as being the beginning of God's creation. And clearly in Revelation 3, it's looking to new creation and it's tying it to the finished work of Christ because he's raised from the dead. He's the start of it all. He's the inauguration of it all. And if we're in Christ by faith, united to Christ by faith, we're raised with him too. It's so good. It's so helpful. This is fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in 43 and 65. This is also true in Galatians chapter 6. We won't take the time to go there, but the same literal would be new creation, Galatians 6.15. And Paul is arguing with the Galatian, what should we call them? Um, The menacers, um, the the people who are trying to mislead Christians in Galatia because they're saying you have to believe in Jesus. So far, so good. And you also have to obey certain aspects of God's law in order to be justified. And Paul strictly, forcefully, boldly 
says, no, it's not true. And he says things like this to the Galatian Christians. He's not mad at them. He's not scolding them. He's mad at the false teachers. But he does call them out for being foolish. And he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That would be dumb. That would be crazy. It would be not true. That's Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but new creation. That's what matters. So are you a citizen of heaven if you're a Christian? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's already a settled matter. That is why the Bible speaks in terms of joint heirs, right? Adoption as sons, down payment, all of those things. It's already taken care of. New creation realities are certain. And if you're a skeptic, you'll say, how could that be? Is it just positive self-talk? Actually, no, and we've already talked about it, but I'm thankful for objections. It's because of the historic person and work of the Lord Jesus who came here before eyewitnesses in time, in space, in history, and he talked about the meaning of the things that he would do and did do. And he was raised from the dead, conquering sin and death. He's the beginning of the new creation. So our faith in a new creation is not faith in faith. It's not positive self-talk. It's actually tied to a person. Should we do new ground now? It's so quiet in here without the stuff running. I can get used to this or get nervous or something. It's, it's a thing. <laughs> let's do a third important biblical doctrine. Some of you are wondering, number, th- number three, let's call it already not yet. Already not yet. Already not yet. A third important biblical doctrine that helps us with perspective and it helps us with perseverance because I think each of these does, does that very thing. If you're new here today, I should say we've been studying the book of Exodus. Um, and so it's on hold. We're at the golden calf portion. Um, so it wasn't very uplifting for prophecy. So I thought we would just put it on hold. But we will get back to Exodus um, shortly. So we're usually in a book of the Bible. This is kind of a, a deviation from something like that. Already not yet. Does that make sense? Sounds like silly talk. But it is a way that Christians who've gone before us and who live among us and who are even in this room some, it's a way Christians have have tried to explain what is from the biblical data. From what we know Scripture to teach, there are things that are already presently true of us spiritually like new creation. But there's also a future aspect when we're going to experience it in its fullness, not just spiritually, but also even physically. And so what kind of label can we come up with? One that Christians have commonly used. I say we might as well use it because it's been pretty helpful. It's not a biblical label, but it's a good theological label that represents the data, I think, already not yet. Already not yet. And we've already been talking in these terms. We've already been speaking in these terms. But I want you to be ready when you hear or you read people talking about the already not yet. You'll say, I know what that is. And I actually think it's biblical because Pastor Pat helped me with it. One author puts it this way. The already refers to the eternal blessings of the age to come, which are realized in the present, while the not yet refers to the blessings of the age to come, yet to be realized in the consummation. 
And if you have been around here very often, and if you haven't been, I'll bring you up to speed. That's why oftentimes, again, theologians use those designations. Bible teachers use the designations. We have the inauguration and the consummation, right? We're, we're already, the church is already the bride, but we're waiting for the great wedding feast. We're looking forward to that, but we already belong as the church but we're waiting for the consummation. It's already not yet. Let's look, let's look at some examples. One we already looked at is 2 Corinthians 5.17. New creation, right? It's already a reality. It's already said and done. So the already is 2 Corinthians 5.17, already new creation. Where would the Bible teach that we need Jesus to come back again? Where would the Bible teach that we need a new heavens and a new earth that come down from heaven? Where would the Bible teach that? You can guess, right? Revelation, right? Go to the end of the end. Go to chapter 21, and it's clear in chapter 21. I won't take the time to read the text, but in chapter 21, 1 to 5, classically, clearly, you all know, even if you don't know the Bible very well, or if you know it really well, there's a second coming. He's got to come. We're waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that comes when the Lamb returns. And so it's an already reality, but it's also in our experience, especially physical experience, it's a not yet thing. Both are true. Both are true. Let's look at another kind of example, and that would be resurrection. Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 15. Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 15. Have you been raised from the dead? That's a trick question, isn't it? And some of you said yes, and some of you said no. And since we're all postmoderns, both are true at the same time, exactly the same way. No, that's not true. That's not it. Have you been raised from the dead? Yeah, you have. Colossians is going to say it. It says, Colossians 3.1, If then you have been raised with Christ, and in the context, all Christians have been, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We could go to Romans 6, we won't, but the same thing is taught. It's union with Christ. You've been, you have been raised with Christ. It's already done. But it's right for you to say, I don't think so. Because... That's also true. You're yet to experience it physically. You're, you're, you're already in. It's already a reality. It's as good as done. So powerfully so, some people don't want you to know it. Because they don't want you to have assurance. I want you to have assurance. I think Romans 8 is true. We've been raised. We're waiting to be raised. 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 51 to 52, classic text. Christians, when they start memorizing Bible passages, they start getting familiar with the Bible. Oh, 1 Corinthians 15, that's resurrection. It says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's a euphemism, a nice way of saying, we'll not all stay dead. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Notice where it's looking. It's it's shall. It's shall. It's will. It's looking so forward to the future. So it's an already reality because he's been raised, but he's been raised on behalf of his people. And so we're going to experience it in the future already, not yet. That's why so much of studying the end times has to do with Christ and what he already did. And we can trust him because he already did that successfully. How about glorification? Uh, so, so in theology and in the Bible, we talk about glorification is when you've experienced, you have a new, new body, new everything. Um, 
No, no more age spots, uh, no more, you know, bad test results. Everything's good. Everything's perfect. Working order, uh, glorification. You don't struggle with sin anymore. Done. Finished. You see Christ and you're made like him. So have we been glorified? Another trick question because we're talking about already, not yet. And lots of you, because we talk about it a lot around here, lots of you already know it's Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, remember that comforting text? Right? 28, God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called by God and called according to His purposes. Loved by God, called according to His purposes off the top of my head. Oh, we, we like Romans 8, 28. Oh, comforting, encouraging. You know why? Because of eschatology. You know why it's so encouraging? Because of already not yet. We could say that because he talks about foreknown, predestined, uh, called, justified, and then in Romans 8, 30, glorified, past tense, perfected. See, that's already, but not yet, because we haven't seen Christ and we're not made like him if we want to go to 1 John. But the reason, so, so think with me about this. Studying the end times, first and foremost, is not to um, quench our speculative curiosity or to sell books. Time and time and time and time and time again, and, and you've maybe been robbed. In the Bible, eschatology, end times kinds of things are meant to comfort and encourage and motivate unto perseverance. 828 is so awesome for lots of reasons. But one big reason it's so awesome is because glorify, duh. Done in Christ. I can face anything and everything because it's already settled. I love that. I so love that. It's amazing. It's amazing. Let's do maybe one more already not yet reality and that would be Related, and that would be healing. That would be healing. I'm not going to ask how many of you have been perfectly healed by Jesus. Because I want you to be honest and not put your hands up. Apart from the Lord's return soon, in our lifetimes, we're all going to have funerals. So you might be in perfect health now. Praise God. Use your perfect health for the glory of God. Awesome. But the reality is we need to be glorified. We're going to get sick. Might get better. But eventually we're not going to get better. Or there's going to be an accident. Something traumatic. And it's sad. The Bible teaches that you already not yet are healed. It is what first Peter talks about. First Peter chapter two, verse 24. I love it. I love it when I look in the mirror in the morning and see more age spots. I love it when there's just another thing, another hard thing. First Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I think it's talking about healing. I've read books before that says, and it's not physical healing, it's spiritual healing. I think it's the whole enchilada. It's done. Taken care of. 
You've been healed. No, you haven't. And we're not just doing self positive self-talk like some religions do. Remember when Jesus was on earth, he would heal people. But not unto ultimate healing. Those people aren't still around today. They had funerals. The apostles would heal people, but it wasn't ultimate healing. They're not around today. But Jesus did show that he has the power, the new creation power. He did give us previews of coming attractions based upon his fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy, which is what First Peter is quoting, that it's certain, it's absolute, it's done, taken care of. It's so good. It's so good. So don't be afraid of First Peter and having it say, by his wounds you have been healed. Don't be afraid and think, oh, that's only for charismatics. Um, charismatics with bad theology that can't explain why we don't stay healthy into time and eternity then. He's talking, that, that's our verse, not their verse. <laughs> it's better than we might think. Uh, somebody mentioned to me today, they mentioned Emmett Champion, who used to be a member of our church, and he's with the Lord now. And Emmett came out of a charismatic, charismatic background, and he would say, Pastor, I'm praying for my healing. And I said, Emmett, I am too, and the Lord might see fit to heal you. But ultimately, apart from the Lord's return, you're probably going to die. And, and if you get healed from this kind of ailment, you're going to die from something else. Emmett, remember, your prayer in one sense has already been answered by the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. By his stripes, you are healed. See, it's already not yet. It's certain. It's absolute. It's wonderful. Before we do the last one, when we talk about already not yet, there's two problems that happen. We, we, we can do one of two things. We either emphasize one or we emphasize the other. And we don't emphasize both. And it's really important that we do already Let's have it be robust. It's certain. New creation. Resurrection. It's certain. But we also have to make sure we emphasize the not yet. Because the second coming is really important. And it's vital. And it's a crucial biblical doctrine. And otherwise, we're just playing mind games saying it's already happened. And it hasn't actually already happened. So both are actually vital realities that we should emphasize both of them. So if you, if you have, you want, you guys want big words now? Cause we're getting ready for a prophecy conference. So we don't want to have under realized eschatology. And if you're new around here, you don't need to learn that kind of stuff. You don't have to, you don't need to know that to get to heaven. Okay. You, you just need to trust in Christ, but you can have an under realized eschatology. And that's going to lead to things like, have I done enough to be justified? Have I been obedient enough? Have I kept enough of, of, of God's law to, to have him acceptable by me? You're going to worry and you're going to, you're going to fret and that's underrealized. You got to say, no, it's Christ's work is done. It's certain having been justified by faith. And so we want to make sure we emphasize that and not underemphasize it. But we don't want to have an overrealized view of the end. The, the worst kind of extreme would be people who deny the second coming. Um, so the, the, we don't have an under-realized or an over-realized. Now I'm going to get deep down into the weeds on this one for a moment. So when Daryl Hart comes and he's a historian that he talks about this, 
it'll be fascinating to consider, consider in history, I hope he goes there, in history when groups have had an over-realized view of the end. Sometimes it's been popular among theological liberals because they don't believe in miraculous things. It's kind of fascinating. He'll talk about the social justice movement in history and how it's a over-realized eschatology. We're just going to have everything be just and fair here and now. And we're just going to redistribute the wealth, which historically has always led to corruption because there's no perfect Messiah to do it. And he's going to talk about that kind of stuff, and it'll be fascinating. See, actually, some of the things we grapple with even in our culture have to do with eschatology. So I'm, I'm intrigued by those sessions. Uh, it also happens in over-realized eschatology haps, happens in theological conservative, conservatism also. That we are going to do it. And we are going to conquer. And we are going to usher in the kingdom of God by doing all of the right things and electing all of the right officials. And we're going to do it. Without Jesus, without the second coming, I'm going to say that's a conservative kind of over-realized eschatology. You see, this stuff actually matters. It matters that we have a good biblical balance of these things so we can face tomorrow with perspective and perseverance. Let's do one more and then we'll wrap it up. One more of these. And that would be number four, fourth futuristic biblical doctrine. Let's call it two-age Let's call it two age. And it overlaps with the other, other things. Two age. Sometimes the study of future things is really complicated. And so I've got to have an age of grace and I've got to have an age of law and I've got to have an age of this and I've got to have an age of that and you've seen some of the charts it can be pretty overwhelming and pretty complicated I'm going to suggest even though there are things that are complicated at least to get a little bit of help from Jesus (laughs) two ages it doesn't look that cool on a chart but I think it might help you. Okay? Just, just listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, and I'm going to give you rapid fire, Matthew 12, 32. Either in this age or in the age to come. Hmm. Mark 10, 30. In the age to come, eternal life. Luke 18, 30. In this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Luke 20, 34 to 36. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, and he goes on to explain it, this age, the age to come. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Ephesians 1.21, for above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Things that make you go, huh. Now again, this might bring more questions to your mind than answers. And that's why 
Michael Beck is going to talk about this at the conference. And he has a whole ministry called Two Age Sojourner. So if you have complicated questions, don't ask me. <laughs> I kid, I actually want to help. But my friend Mike is going to come to actually talk about these kinds of things as, as well as already not yet. He's written on the topic. It'll be helpful. But at least to get you started, wouldn't it be a lot simpler if there are two ages? It'd be a lot simpler. It might mess with your system. might not work. And we could talk more about that. But let's at least begin by seeing and hearing Jesus and the apostles again and again. It's either in this age or in the age to come. Hmm. Sounds a lot like there are two ages. Let's end with Revelation 1. I hope this has been helpful. I always get nervous when I'm going to do something other than consecutive book of the Bible exposition. But I think there's a place for this kind of thing. And I really, really do want you to face tomorrow better. And I really want you to have the right kind of assurance. And I really do want you to be a better Bible reader. And I really do want you to benefit from what we have in a couple weeks. But Revelation 1 is a great way to end. Okay? It's written to the... Who's Revelation written to? The seven churches. Okay? In the first century... There are seven real churches, okay? And they probably represent all churches. I'm willing to say that. But he's writing to Christians, men and women, boys and girls. And he's writing to them. And what he says to them, so what I'm stressing is, it was meant for them. I think if it was meant for them by application, it would be meant for us to encourage perspective and perseverance. Too many times we think, now when does the stuff in the book of Revelations happen? <laughs> you saw what I did there. <laughs> well, the stuff in the book of Revelations is never going to happen because there's no such thing as the book of Revelations. But I digress. Oh yeah, it's a future looking book. Absolutely. But he's writing it to Christians to help them where they were living, that might give us a clue about how we might need to be encouraged by the book as well. It says in Revelation, we'll just do the opening verses. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Seven churches. This is meant to help you. I think it might be meant to help us too. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what we've talked about. Thank you for what we've learned. Ultimately, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do want to live like those who belong to the eternal city, even though right now we are not there. Motivate us to do that. May we 
live for the glory of Christ. May we do so with passion. May we do so with fervency. May we do so in a way that would show love for you and love for our neighbor, not because we have to do those things to gain eternal life, but because the Lord Jesus Christ has done those things for us so that eternal life is sure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.